here we go. All right, this is the John 13 through 17 Upper Room Discourse ADE class, February 5th, 2023. We're going to be in John chapter 15 this morning. But before we embark, uh, let's pray together. Father, this is uh, as uh, it's hard to say when you know. <laughs> It's my favorite passage, but any passage I spend time in becomes my favorite passage of Scripture. And so I just thank you that we get the time to study this together. And I just pray that this text would come alive to our hearts. Pray that it would be an encouragement, that it would help us grow in discernment, and uh, that it would help us to think about rightly about Christian living and, uh, and, uh, and what it means to be abiding in you. So we ask for your help over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty. <clears throat> so, just a quick recap of where we've been. There is handouts over on this music stand over here, if y'all need one. Um, so John 13 through 17, as you guys will recall, is a really fascinating zoom in on just a few hours of Jesus's life. You know, 25% of the Gospel of John is dedicated to this last evening that Jesus has with his disciples. And during Jesus's last night with his disciples, Judas departs from their midst on a mission to betray his master. And with only the faithful disciples remaining, Jesus gives final instructions for continuing his ministry without him. It's kind of what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. They must obey his commandments and ask in his name. And in return, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit and the triune God will abide in the heart of the believer. So we kind of talked about just trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples during this evening. How they really had a misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. And so they were anticipating during this Passover feast for Jesus to go to the Temple Mount and usher in a physical kingdom on earth. And that since they were in his inner circle, that they were going to get to have a uh, high position of authority within his kingdom, get to have some privileges and some benefits of that. And that kind of helps explain why the disciples were arguing back and forth with each other about uh, what... Uh, what, uh, what position, who was the better, who had the greater position amongst them. And here Jesus is uh, bringing reality, raining it down upon them about what is really going to happen. Even though he'd already been signaling and foreshadowing his crucifixion, this evening he just kind of brings it up again. And then to their surprise, as they are thinking that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, Jesus tells them there's a betrayer among you. And they cannot fathom who the person would be that would betray Jesus and why someone on earth would betray Jesus when he's about to establish his kingdom. In the midst of that, Jesus then starts telling them, I'm not going to be here much longer. I'm leaving. I'm going away. And where you cannot go, or where I'm going, you cannot come. And the disciples are really confused by that. They say, well, they're thinking, it's nighttime. Where are you going to go at this time of night? Are you going to the Temple Mount? I mean, like, which street are you going to go on? I don't know the way that you're going to take to get there. We know that from our study of John 14 that Jesus was speaking of heaven. But the disciples, they're just struggling to keep up with what Jesus is really talking about. And in the midst of all this, too, when Jesus says, I'm leaving, they're sitting there concerned about, well, who's going to continue doing the ministry? We've been working with you for three years. You've been doing all the teaching. You've been doing all the miracles. You've been leading us in the direction of what we're supposed to do. You're the one who sent us out two by two on our missionary trips. You're the one who tells us what city we're going to. Well, what are we going to do now? So we've been studying in John 14 how Jesus says, you're going to keep doing the work that we've been doing, and you're actually going to do greater works, greater in extent works than I have done. You're going to continue ministering to people that will bring about eternal impact. You're going to be ministering to people that will convert their souls for an eternal blessing. 
We see that example in like Acts chapter 2, where after the first sermon is preached, 3,000 souls converted to Christ. So that's John 14, but then he says, don't worry that I'm going to be gone because I'm going to send you a helper. So you have a lot of work to do while I'm gone. You're going to be busy, but don't worry. Somebody's going to be there to help you. Not only to help you do the work, but also to help you remember all the things that I've taught you over these past three years. Someone's going to help you. The Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, is going to be, He is already with you, and He's going to be in you. And that's what we kind of studied last week with Jamar's teaching about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the profound nature of that um, reality. It's uh, with that kind of thing in mind, we understand the context of what's happening in the uh, recap there, I said this will allow, the Holy Spirit will allow the disciples to perform even greater works than Jesus, witnessing an abundance of converts through the spreading of the gospel, knowing that the ruler of the world has come, it ha- was coming, using the betrayer as his tool. Jesus commands the disciples to get up from dinner and to follow him to the place where he will be betrayed. So in the text we're about to read this morning, the disciples are not in the upper room anymore. They've gotten up. That's the very last verse of chapter 14. Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. And so what we're about to read takes place as they're walking through the the moonlit streets of Jerusalem toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus knows full well that he will be betrayed. Before we start reading the text, I just kind of want to set it up for what we're going to kind of learn in this text with an introduction. So this is page one still of your handout. Uh, Marie Kondo. Anybody know? Ever heard that name before? Marie Kondo? A few folks? Marie Kondo is a Japanese organizing consultant and is well known for her books such as Spark Joy or The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And for her popular Netflix show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, where she inspires home makeovers and helps people clear out the clutter and choose joy. The essence of her philosophy, which is based on Shintoism, is that you can find peace and joy by getting rid of stuff rather than accumulating it. She challenges her followers to ask the question, does it spark joy? And if it doesn't, get rid of it. Pitch it. What do you think draws people? I mean, she has a really popular show on Netflix. What do you think draws people to Marie Kondo's minimalistic lifestyle and principles? Yeah, here in our Western culture, we got a lot of stuff. We're busy accumulating. So, yeah, somebody else was about to say something over here, I think. Well, they're looking for happiness and joy. Yeah. Yeah, looking, everyone's looking for happiness and joy. And so if we're busy over here in our culture accumulating, thinking that brings happiness, and it's not, and then this lady comes over and says, hey, actually, happiness is found in getting rid of your stuff. That kind of triggers people. People are looking for happiness. Why, why do you think this question number two, why might people actually find happiness when they take her advice? Usually you don't become popular if your stuff doesn't work to a degree. Okay, yeah. People start to treasure other stuff rather than just immaterial things, or material things, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts? No longer possessed by their possessions. Oh, that's good. No longer possessed by their possessions. So not, not letting something rule over you. You know, there's a sense of freshness, just a, I don't know, to end that the human heart craves when you kind of clear up clutter. I don't know, like with our kids, um, all I have to do to kind of get them re-engaged with playing with toys is pick them up. <laughs> I put away their toys and then immediately the, the creative juices start flowing in their heads and they start going and tearing up everything I just cleaned. 
But that's, you know, it's just interesting. You know, it's like, oh, this is, everything seems new. Everything seems fresh. Now we're going to destroy it. But we, even as adults, like that. We like the fresh, clean slate. Question number three. What problems are there with Marie Kondo's approach to life? Well, she says, to, if it doesn't give you joy, get rid of it. That implies that, well, there are some things that probably will give you joy, so hang on to them, because that's the source of your joy. Yeah. Yeah. So... Just kind of basically what Steve said is that the, she's Im- implying that there's some material possessions that do bring joy. So she's telling and teaching us to look to certain possessions in our life to find joy. I think one of the articles I read on her, um, the interviewer asked, you know, had found out what things she likes, and there's certain teas that she clings to, and certain little rituals she goes through every morning that bring quote unquote joy to her life. What else? What are some other problems with Marie Kondo's approach? That joy is fleeting. It's, it's not sustainable because you're ultimately going to accumulate more stuff which you have to get rid of and then you're trying to find joy in these other items that are just materialistic possessions. Yeah. So Justin pointed out that, that her approach kind of views joy as this thing that's fleeting. That is something that you always have to be working towards and, and retaining or getting rid of stuff or looking for the next object to bring you joy and replacing the stuff that doesn't bring joy anymore. It's kind of an endless cycle. Any other thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> Completely left the Lord out of the picture. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Shintoism is not going to point you to the creator of the universe as a source of joy, for sure. Uh, last paragraph on page one. Marie Kondo's popularity is explained by the innate desire in every human being to be happy and their search for the secrets to unlocking happiness. There's no shortage of articles out there that you could Google or see on the sidebar of whatever it is you're reading that says, you know, Three secrets to happiness, you know, weight weight loss program that will make your life happier. Tidying up your life will make you happier. Three ways to make uh, improve your home life with your children and things like that. And and what's funny is that the most recent article on Marie Kondo was the fact that she's had her third child now, and she's it's the article was all about how she's given up keeping her house tidy. <laughs> so everybody was kind of like celebrating that she's a normal person, and that means we're normal. <laughs> God himself is happy, and as his image bearers, we desire and experience happiness too. But the problem is that sin distorts our view of what makes us happy, and we end up looking for it in all the wrong places. But in John 15, 1-11, Jesus teaches that our relationship with him is the foundation of fruitful Christian living and our joy. He explains what the disciples must do in order to bear fruit in ministry— They must habitually and continually abide in the vine. Through this vital connection, both Jesus and the Father will ensure that their work will be accomplished. Okay, so remember our context. Jesus is leaving. Jesus is telling the disciples, this is what you need to do in your life. And he's telling them how to do it. How to do it. So you're going to have a helper. And now he's giving a little bit more teaching on how. First paragraph of page 2. The last verse of chapter 14 tells us that Jesus got up from the table and departed with the disciples. Chapter 15 takes place as the disciples are walking through the moonlit streets of Jerusalem, crossing the Kidron Valley to the east on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is during this time that Jesus shifts gears from consolation to instruction and uses a common everyday object to teach an exceptional lesson. So let's look at the first, uh, let's see, we got first five verses of John 15, first six verses. First six verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, and it, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, 
unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. In this text, in John 15, Jesus uses what we would call an extended metaphor. So it's not a parable. A parable is a story given where the answers to what the parable means are not given. Uh, if you go through the Gospels and see why Jesus does, uses parables, he uses it to hide the truth from unbelievers. That's why you have the disciples often come up to him and say, what does that mean? And Jesus explains it to them. But here, this is just an extended metaphor. So usually a metaphor would just be uh, used in just a single sentence, but here it's played out to illustrate a point. But what object does Jesus use in his illustration, and what four characters are represented in the imagery? What, ob what object does Jesus use in this illustration? A vine. Yeah, a very common thing to see all the time. I mean, you think about grapes, grapevines were a huge common industry in the ancient Near East and Israelites' time because they used grapes uh, in the fermentation process to create wine uh, in various levels of strength to, in order to uh, purify the water they drank. Um, there's a differentiation between uh, wine and strong drinks. So not just because it was wine doesn't mean it was just this uh, strong alcoholic beverage all the time. Uh, but the Bible does differentiate between that. But so God, Jesus is using a really common thing that they would have recognized, understood, and known. And, it, and it's really important. This question maybe seemed like a duh question. This is a simple observation question of the text. But we have to be really um, uh, careful when we're looking at a parable or an extended metaphor, that we correctly identify um, what Jesus or the teaching uh, is trying to symbolize with the metaphor and not overextend the metaphor. So there's usually one main point that is trying to be conveyed, and you have to be careful not to read uh, something into every little detail, because that's not what Jesus is trying to do. So, it's important to identify who he's illustrating. So, what are the four characters represented in the imagery of the vine? You can find that in verses 1 and 2. Branches. The vine dresser. Okay, I don't, I don't think the fruit's a, an, one of the characters, but it, it is important to the illustration. We'll talk about that in a second. They got branches. Vine dresser. What else? Okay, that's an action. But who are the characters? See, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Okay, there's an actor. Jesus is in a character, an actor in this. I am the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And then you actually have two additional actors. There's two types of branches. Branches that bear fruit and branches that do not. Okay, so those are our four actors in this extended metaphor. What do the two types of branches represent? Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Believers and unbelievers. That is the simple and truest answer. And I really want you to cling to that. Maybe you have not heard of controversies that deal with this passage, but there is no shortage of misinterpretations of this passage, all stemming from a misinterpretation of verse 2 and identifying who are the two types of branches. For example, if you say that there is only one type of branch and it is believer who either bears fruit or does not, what conclusion 
could you come to based on verse 2? If you think that every branch in Jesus here, whether it bears fruit or not, is a believer, what wrong interpretation could you come to? That a believer can lose his salvation. Right? The moment you stop bearing fruit, cut off. Thrown into the fire. That'd be terrifying. A terrifying prospect. Certainly goes against the rest of teachings in Scripture as well. And it's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. And we don't even have to leave this passage to see that. But it is so important for the right interpretation of this that we understand that there are two types of branches, ones that bear fruit and one that are not, and the, the fruitful branches are representative of Christians, true, genuine, saved believers, and the other branch is false believer. One who attaches himself to the vine, draws sustenance, blessings from it, but is different because he never bears fruit never bears fruit. There is such thing as a sucker branch that attaches itself to the vine. Again, steals blessings, enjoys benefits, nutrients from the vine, but is itself never really truly part of the vine because it doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit. Question number six. In verse three, Jesus restates the reality that the disciples are already saved. That's what he says. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. With the exception of Judas, which he said in John 13, 10, while washing their feet. So if you recall, John, uh, Jesus is washing their feet to their shame. And uh, Peter says, no, Lord, I, I can't let you wash my feet. And Jesus says, if, you, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. To which Jesus says, or Peter says, well, didn't wash my whole body. I mean, just wash everything. And Jesus says, well, I don't need to wash your whole body. You're already clean, but not all of you. You only have need of washing your feet once in a while, your hands, just not your whole body. So Jesus' spiritual illustration there was that you're already saved, except not all of you. So in verse 3, he's kind of restating that. How do you think that statement in verse 3 helps clarify the identity of the two branches. If you're the disciple and you hear Jesus say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then he follows up with that and says, you are clean. How would that be reassuring to you? It's like he just identified you're part of group A. Right. Yep, there's group A and there's group B. You know, group A is those who don't abide in, or group A is those who abide in me. Group B is those who do not. Don't worry, guys. You're a part of group A. You're already clean. Quotation here from Hendrickson's commentary says, That would seem to settle the question with respect to the identity of the two groups. Group A, branches that bear fruit and are cleansed, represents all those who do not only come into close contact with Christ and the gospel, but also, by God's sovereign grace and through faith, accept it. Group B, branches that do not bear fruit and are taken away and burned, represents all the others who have come into close contact with Christ and the gospel. So how would this metaphor be helpful to the disciples in light of Judas's betrayal? He was part of group B. That even though you give lip service, so to speak, 
you still have to accept Christ in faith. You can still be close like Judas was and say all the right things and, and do all the right things, but if you don't accept him into your heart, you're still in group B. Yeah. No, that's good. Both Alan and, and Justin, you guys idea is that it helps identify why Judas betrayed. He was in group B. It helps identify why he fell away. Can you imagine the disciples being concerned? Well, how do I, what, how will I know if I'm going to become a Judas? How will I know if I spend all this time with Jesus only to end up betraying him in the end and fall away? How do I know if I'm not like that? <clears throat> it really helps the believers assess and understand why people fall away. So how does this metaphor instructive for us when we know someone who professed faith and seemed to be changed, perhaps even grew up in church, but later in life falls away? How does this verse help us process that? person seemed like they were connected to Jesus, but they were really withering and eventually fall away, and it just kind of explains then that they never really were genuinely saved. There's a lot of scriptures that speak to that reality that we could go and look at. Turn the page to page three. Here's some of the here's some of the sobering realities that we learn from Judas's example and from this text. That you can, I think, uh, Justin, you kind of said this, you can be, uh, you can have lip service, but not truly be saved, right? Judas is an example of that. He worked with the disciples, worked with Jesus for three years, went on, got sent out on these missionary trips. You know what? And Judas probably had a role in proclaiming the gospel to people and people being saved because of it. That should also kind of blow your mind. You can be exposed to the truth and still not be saved by the truth. Hebrews 3 teaches us that truth as well. You can appreciate the truth, but never apply the truth. You can receive blessings from the truth without actually receiving the truth itself. That's kind of the sucker branch idea. Hebrews chapter 6 is a really good verse that explains that reality. I'm going to read that real quick. It's worth worth the reading. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6 uh, is really a, a giant warning passage against apostasy, about turning away from the faith. And it says this in verse 4, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. <coughs> it's interesting there. You have a description of people who have been enlightened by the Word of God, who have tasted... The heavenly, the heavenly gifts, or some of the blessings of God, and have shared in the Holy Spirit to a degree, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet fall away. So that it is possible for someone to grow up in the church all their life. It is possible to enjoy the blessings of being around genuine believers. It is possible to have your life improved by some of the generic principles of Scripture. It is possible to be blessed by the kind actions of other Christians full of the Holy Spirit, even though you are not. And then to wither away and show yourself not to be a believer. Verse 7, For the land that has drunk the rain that falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who... Who, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But 
if it bears thorns and thistles. So a land that drinks the rain, the blessings of God, but produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So this passage is like John 15, Hebrews chapter 6. Do not teach that someone who is genuinely saved can fall away from the faith. But it is still a warning to those who are genuinely saved not to abandon the faith. See, that's, that's the balance. You know, when, a lot of times in Scripture, when we're presented with many truths that seem to be in tension against each other, seem to contradict each other, there's a balance beam of God's Word that helps us walk that tightrope. And the tightrope is, is that those who are genuinely saved can never fall away from the faith because God gives them warnings in Scripture that keep them in the faith. So the warnings that you see in, in Scriptures that are about falling away and, and uh, not biting in Christ, they're real warnings. But at the same time, true believers will never fall away. They are kept by the warnings. A true believer hears the warning, you need to abide in Jesus and says, okay, I'll do that. I don't want to fall away. That's how a true believer responds. A true believer hears the words of Hebrews 6, where it says, this is the exit ramp of apostasy. This is what it looks like for someone who starts going away from the faith. And the believer says, oh my goodness, I'm on the exit ramp. I better get off. Or the true believer says, oh, there's the exit ramp. I'm not going that way. That's how the warnings, God uses warnings in the function. It's God, the, you know, we talk about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that once a believer, you are always saved. It is true that God, this is how I like to just explain the doctrine, God preserves his saints so that they persevere. Because in that definition, you have the both elements, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. God preserves his saints so that they will persevere. You can't persevere on your own. You're not saved by your perseverance. God saves you by preserving you. But you also have a duty and a responsibility to persevere. You can't do it by yourself, but you have a responsibility to do it. So you kind of see some of that tension here in John chapter 15 as well. Uh, but back in, back at the top of page 3, some of the other things we see uh, in light of Judas's example. Association with Christ is not the same as having a relationship with Christ. And identification by others as a disciple is not the same as being known by Jesus. That should conjure in your mind the very sobering passage at the very end of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, many, many will come to me on that day. What day? Day of judgment. Day when either Jesus returns <coughs> or the day when somebody dies, and they stand before him, and Jesus says, Away with you, I never knew you. And those people will still protest. Lord, Lord, didn't I do these things in your name? Prophesied in your name? Did all these deeds in your name? And he says, Away with me, I never knew you. I never knew that word there in the, in the Greek is, is, uh, embodies this idea of a relationship, not just head knowledge, of course, Jesus knows about them. He knows everything. I did not have a relationship with you. It was a sobering, sobering reality that many people are deceived and up to the point of judgment, to the day of judgment, deceived in thinking that their association with Christ is the same as a relationship with him. We see this even throughout the New Testament. There's many people who are baptized as the apostles were going forth and planting churches all across uh, the Middle East, and Asia, Europe, Rome, Italy, only for them to later fall away. Hymenaeus, Alexander, right? You have these people who started up in the church and then became false teachers. So it's, it's possible for someone to even go through the process of baptism and all these things and be identified even by the church and say, hey, yeah, by your profession of faith, by the way you're acting, you look like a believer. It's possible then for that person still to not truly know Jesus. Sobering reality. 
sobering reality. But John 15 gives us hope in the midst of that and identifying and evaluating ourselves to see whether or not we are really, truly a part of the vine. This quotation from Hendrickson again, in no sense whatever do such passages as verse 2 and 6 suggest that there is a falling away from grace, as if those who were once actually saved finally perish. This metaphor plainly teaches that the branches, as I left off a B there, uh, the branches which are taken away and burned represent people who never once bore fruit. Never once bore fruit. Not even when they were in Christ. Hence, they never were true believers. And for them, the in-the-vine relationship, though close, was merely outward. And that's the, that's the hang-up in verse 2, where a lot of people get interpretationally get uh, tripped up, is that uh, Jesus says in verse 2, every branch in me. And we're used to when we see the, the prepositional phrase in me, like in Romans or in Ephesians, that has some theological significance, right? United in Christ. But here in this text, that preposition doesn't carry the same weight that it does in other places. It is, in this context, it is possible to be attached to Jesus in an external way, but not in a true saving way. How do you know? Simply, how does a, does a person bear fruit or not? Question number nine, according to verse four, according to verse four, which says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So according to that verse, what is the main point Jesus is teaching with this illustration? Okay. That we can't be saved on our own, that we need to trust and depend upon Him. Other thoughts? the context. Jesus is leaving. He's telling his disciples all the work that they need to be doing, how they need to serve and worship an invisible Savior. They're discouraged. What are we going to do without our leader? Don't worry. You're going to have a helper. Don't worry. You've got a lot of work to do. And in verse 4, he gives them the how to accomplishing that work. So I just say, he says, how you are going to do this work, abiding in me. That's how you're going to do it. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who are clean. And he's reminding them to continue doing the greater works than I have done. You just continue to abide in me. Keep abiding. He's not telling them to abide in him for the first time. He said, keep doing it. Keep abiding in me. Because apart from me, you try to do things apart from depending on me, you're not going to be bearing any fruit. Abide in me. That's the whole point. Talking to believers, talking, giving them instruction about how to carry out ministry, and the foundation of living a life as a Christian is abiding in Christ. So then that, asks, that begs the question, that begs a few questions. Question number 10 on page 3. Is the command to abide in verse 4, does it imply that you can lose your salvation? Why or why not? We already kind of talked about that. So that's a poorly placed question on my part. <clears throat> Carson, D.A. Carson says, If obedience is the condition of continuously remaining in Jesus' love, it is no less important to remember that in John 14... This is verse 15 and 21. Our love for Jesus is the wellspring of our obedience to Him, as our obedience is demonstrated as a demonstration of the reality of that love. So this is not a command to earn your salvation or maintain your salvation. It is a command to live in light of being clean. 
You're already clean. He said that in verse 3. He's not saying, abide in me so you can be clean. You're already clean. I've already saved you. I already have loved you. You already love me. Obey my commands. Love one another. Continue the ministry. Continue to abide in me because if you don't, you're not going to be as fruitful. You can't do any of this ministry work apart from abiding in me. <clears throat> what two actions does the Father perform on branches based on verse 2 and verse 6? Look at verse 2. What two actions does the Father, the vine dresser, do? He removes and he prunes. That's right. What is the... Uh, let's skip question 12. What does it mean when God prunes believers? That's question 13. A few hard problems, basically, what it amounts to. But I mean, when you prune a branch, you're just cutting off a little bit of it to make it grow. Yeah, yeah. So Alan brought up brought up uh, his green thumb. Just the idea that when you prune, you're cutting a little bit of the branch off in order to help it grow, in order to help it produce fruit. And so Jesus using a simple gardening illustration. So what is the spiritual equivalent of that? What is what does God do when He spiritually prunes a believer? Discipline? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 12 is a great way. What's Again, remember the point of pruning is to help you become more fruitful. So you can go to like Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is a great book of the Bible. And then hanging out there. Hanging out there today. Hebrews chapter 12 is one of the foundational passages on discipline. Remember, discipline often has a connotation in our minds of like, you're in trouble. And so you're going to get disciplined. But discipline, especially in this text, really just means training. Training. <clears throat> it says this, Have you forgotten, this is chapter 12, verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have <coughs> participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had many earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not be more, much more subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. So God disciplines those he loves, whom He loves, prunes them so that they might share in His holiness. That is what it means for our good. You need to think about like Romans 8, 28, where God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. What is the good? To share in His holiness? To be like Christ? That's what it says in verse 29. So Jesus, or sorry, the Father prunes us one way is through discipline. Is there another way God prunes us? Takes away something in our lives that He doesn't want there. Yeah. So... Just like in the illustration of the vine, he takes away something that's in the way of us being fruitful, in the way of being holy. So there could be something that is in our life, could be sinful or non-sinful, that God removes from our life in order to grow. Could be something we're idolizing, struggling with in our sin, and God removes it in order to help prune us so that we're more fruitful. It's distracting us from living a life of holiness. What else? There's one more really big way God prunes us. <clears throat> Think James chapter 1. Sometimes he puts us through tough times. There you go. Tough times. that, you know, if you really go through something really hard, 
you do one of two things. You run to God or you run away from Him. That was good. Alan says when we go through hard times, we do one of two things. We either run away from God or we run to God. But suffering, trouble, hard times... Uh, James chapter 1, Romans chapter 5 really speak about trials and what they do and how they um, produce character in us and character produces steadfastness and steadfastness produces hope. And that's one of the ways that God prunes us is by making us go through suffering, all forms of suffering, various trials, as James 1 says, of various kinds. There's too many to list. So I'm just going to say trials of all kinds. That's what, that's what uh, James is saying there in James 1. Losing a child, going through sickness, losing a loved one, chronic illness, chronic difficulties, persecution for the faith, sinful struggles that we endure, the consequences of that can be purifying. I think Thomas Watson was a Puritan who said that uh, the sick bed is oftentimes a better teacher than the than the sermon on Sunday. Just, these are the ways that God prunes our souls for the purpose of being of showing us His goodness and helping us share in His holiness. Turn the page, page four. <clears throat> this is the last section of John chapter fifteen. The joyful blessings of Christian living. Verses 7 through 11. Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So one of the questions that's begged in this text is, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? And Jesus expounds upon it in these verses. Isn't that awesome? When you're studying a text... And you read a verse, and you're like, what does that mean? And you read a little further, and it explains, oh, that's what it means. That's great. According to verse 7 and verse 10, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Trust and obey. <clears throat> Verse 10 would, uh, would uh, back up your obey part. Verse 10 says, If you keep my uh, commandments, you will abide in my love. So you see uh, an uh, uh, equation there. Uh, uh, abiding in Jesus' love equals obeying his commandments. What is Verse 7. What does verse 7 show us about what it means to abide? Yeah. If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish. So Jesus there kind of equates, if we are abiding in him, It'll be recognized by the fact that His words abide in us. <clears throat> does that mean? Does that mean you have to read your Bible to be saved? It means you should want to. <laughs> yeah, that's a careful way of putting it. You're yeah, careful with that, right? Um, you know, having your own personal Bible, first of all, is a some relatively uh, modern experience. Right? The Gutenberg Press uh, was a big invention that allowed people to start printing stuff. But even when that came along, everyone didn't have a personal Bible yet. Um, no, I don't think you are saved by reading your Bible. You're not saved by doing anything but trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But as Alan says, if you, if you love the Lord, 
you should want to know what he what he has said you want that to abide in you you want his words to be filling your mind right as colossians 317 says allow the word of christ to dwell in you richly and when that happens it springs forth in singing hymns songs or spiritual songs to one another we kind of get an idea, a better idea of what it means to abide in Christ. It does mean to trust in Him. It means to, that His words are abiding in us. That's, that's a kind of a, a fruit of a trusting in Him. It's that we cling to His words. That We're like the Greeks who were searching for Jesus, but He was in the temple. And if you're a Greek, you can't go in the temple. And so they approached His disciples and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's the heart of a genuine believer. Perfectly every day you wake up in the morning like ah, oh, just can't wait to get no But in general that is the the heart cry of the believer To want to abide in him to know him to know his words to know his word is to know him And we when we know him we obey his commandments The the term Greek term meno uh, for abide there describes something that remains where it is continues in a fixed state or endures it is in this context, the word refers to maintaining an unbroken communion with Jesus Christ. So right there, though, that necessitates that you already have a relationship with him, right? Jesus said, you are already clean. You already have a relationship with me. Remain. Remain. The Lord's command, abide in me, is primarily a plea to false disciples of Christ to repent and express true faith in him. It also serves to encourage genuine believers to abide in Him in the fullest, deepest, most complete sense. And we are running out of time. <clears throat> what are some examples of believing of believers abiding in Christ? <clears throat> What's that? They stick to them. Stick to them. The believers stick to Jesus. How do we how do we show that we're sticking to Jesus? That's a good way to put it. Sticking, sticking to Him. What's that? Cherish. Cherish him. Yeah. So maybe in how the way people talk about Jesus, do you talk about him? Do you talk about God? I always convicted about this thought my own my own life. Do I ever talk about God with my children outside of discipline? <laughs> right. Deuteronomy tells us to talk about him all the time when we get up, when we sit down, when we sit at the table, when we're lying down, as we walk along the way talking about God and His goodness. So do you cherish Him, like Mandy said? You should be able to tell if somebody cherishes Him by the way they talk, how they spend their time, what's important to them. What are some other examples? Being willing to not renounce Him even in the face of death. Uh, being, not renouncing Him even in the face of death? Physical death, you know, kind of martyrdom, or I would even say not renouncing him when uh, Jesus puts to death the things you love on this earth. <laughs> not renouncing him when you go through the painful pruning process. Recognizing that it's the love of God disciplining you and pruning you for your good. Removing things, even if they are non-sinful things. Removing them from you. Like your health. Like Job. Think about Job. All the things that were removed from him so that he might share in the holiness of God. It was a mercy. That's what James 5 tells us. The whole lesson of Job is about seeing the mercy of God. There's a lot of examples for the sake of time. We'll continue on. I would say just one last one is also just, do you uh, love Jesus' bride? All right, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that the church is Jesus' bride? Do you enjoy spending time with Jesus' bride? That's one of the ways you cherish an invisible Savior. You enjoy spending time with His bride. And last week when I preached, I talked about my favorite little illustration of that text. Is like, if you were to tell me, Tyson, I really like hanging out with you. You're fun, but could you leave your wife at home? I don't really like her very much. I'd be pretty offended. I'm tempted to punch you. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but that's what happens. That's that's the same thing when uh, people say, "Well, I, I I love Jesus. I follow Him. I, I'll do, I, you know I like Him, but eh, church isn't for me. I'm eh, not into the church thing. I don't like. I don't need to go to church. 
It's like, Jesus, I love you, but eh, I don't really care for your bride. I don't like her. It's offensive. <clears throat> How do you love an invisible Savior? You love the visible manifestation of Jesus' body on earth, a.k.a. the church, his bride. This quote from J.C. Ryle, True grace, we must not forget, is never idle. It never slumbers and never sleeps. It is a vain notion to suppose that we are living members of Christ if the example of Christ is not to be seen in our characters and lives. Fruit is the only satisfactory evidence of saving union between Christ and our souls. This is an important thing just in our remaining time to, to point out. Christians will always, genuine saved Christians will always bear fruit. Always. From the moment of conversion, even when they're a tiny baby infant Christian, not mature in the faith at all, they will bear fruit. What kind of fruit? We'll talk about that in just a second. But they will always bear fruit. The fact that we need pruning tells us that there's times when we are not as fruitful as we could be, but we're still bearing fruit. So I really want to strongly reject the idea of a carnal Christian. That's the idea of a Christian who's living like the world, who claims Jesus in only name only, but has no fruit whatsoever in their lives. That person is not a Christian. There is a slippery teaching that people often abuse John 15 to teach, this idea that there's a carnal Christian. That there's a Christian who, uh, who's attached to the vine, and there's times when they don't bear fruit. No. A Christian always is bearing fruit. Always. Sometimes, not as much as they should. That's why we all need pruning. All of us need pruning. And God does it. He prunes those he loves. He prunes those who are clean, who are saved by faith alone. But there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. As an oxymoron, a fruitless Christian, unbelieving believer. Like that that's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not biblical. So what is fruit? In our last two minutes, what is fruit? Jesus says, if you abide in me, you'll produce fruit. And your fruit was glorify God. What is fruit? Yep, pretty simple. Christ likeness. You could you could give a, you could parse it out and give a lot of details to that answer. Christ like living, Christian living, faith, endurance, any of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. All that inside internal fruit manifesting itself in external fruit as well. Actions, ministry, growth. Remember, the, the Christian life is like a stock market graph. And except in the, when a genuine Christian, the stock market trend will always be up. But like any stock, there's often downs, ups and downs. And there can be even a really low down. But God will prune you if you're a genuine believer and bring you back up. But the overall trajectory in your whole life, if you zoom out, is Christ-likeness up. It'll be always up. A genuine believer will always mature, even if it's slow, even if there's some stumblings, you will always, always mature and grow to be more like Christ because God is the one who's preserving you so that you will persevere. Right? We go to John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep, no one will snatch them out of my hand. If I've saved you, if you're clean, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You will persevere. You will abide in me because I love you and my love is in you. And when we do that, our joy is made more full. And I wish we had more time to talk about that. This is a quote at the top of page five. A quote from MacArthur's commentary. A popular misconception equates fruit with outward success. By that common standard, external religion, superficial righteousness, having a large church, a popular ministry, or a successful program are considered fruitful. But the Bible nowhere equates fruit with superficial external behaviors or results, which deceivers and hypocrites, as well as non-Christian cults and religions, can duplicate. Instead, Scripture defines fruit in terms of spiritual qualities. 
the fruit of the Spirit, Paul reminded the Galatians, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those Christ-like traits mark those who, through whom his life flows. And when God prunes us, when we seek to abide in him, we have fullness of joy. That's the very verse 11 profound truth. Remember, it's kind of like what I preached last week. We already have the fullness of peace. We already have the fullness of, of um, uh, love. We already have the fullness of grace from God, but we don't always experience it in the fullness. Remember, God's not just holding back some of his joy and saying, okay, if you jump through this hoop, I'll give you some more joy, like you're giving a dog a treat after it does a trick. No. But our sin gets in the way of a fullness of joy. So Jesus says, continue to abide in me. Abide in me, and you will bear fruit. And as you bear fruit for God's glory, verse 10, your joy will be, my joy will be in you. And it will be full. It will be experienced in the full. So, we're out of time. That is John 15. That is the foundation of Christian living, part one. Next week we'll get into part two as Jesus continues then to talk about not only our relationship with him, but our relationship with believers. And then the next section will be our relationship with the world. So tune in next time. Thanks, everybody.